All right, well, I, uh, I've been telling you that we are going to do the book of Galatians. I've been telling you for some time now, hope that you've been um, reading ahead, reading through the book and preparing for it. And today, as our custom is, we'll do an introduction to the book. We won't actually get into it verse by verse, but we will address the, um, we might say, some special considerations in the book. Uh, We'll talk about historical context, doctrinal contributions. Uh, We'll look at the authorship and date. And then, um, as I told first service, I originally had uh, put together a... um, uh, an extensive outline to present to you, but I find that most people don't like those. And so I ended up stealing one, uh, as I often do, from Dr. Norman Geisler that is short and sweet to the point. <coughs> so hopefully that'll um, work out for you. If you want a longer one, um, I can give you some outlines of Galatians that are pages long if you want them. So just come ask me and I'll give it to you. So anyway, why don't we, uh, well, I, I did have to say, uh, you know, BJ and Elaine had their baby girl Friday, and uh, everybody's healthy as far as I know, and I've already forgotten baby's name. Emily? Emily? Emily Rose. Okay. All right. So now it's two girls and seven boys, and the girls are the two youngest. So... I pity the fool that uh, asked those girls out later on, so, as it ought to be, right? Well, let's stand up and we'll pray and uh, we'll get into this introduction. All right, well, Father, thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, we thank you for the book of Galatians. I've already uh, been refreshed by it, reading it, and just reestablishing new and fresh conviction. Um, and, uh, and Lord, the liberty uh, presented in the book of Galatians. Not only do you want us to know about it, Lord, you want us to experience liberty in Christ. And uh, so I just pray that as we uh, begin and go through, that um, each of us, Lord, Uh, day by day, we would experience more freedom in Christ and uh, to serve you more deeply, to love you. And so, Lord, thank you. Be with us now as we uh, look at this. And I pray that, as your word says, may all things be done for edification. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Who read uh, through Galatians this last week? Two, three, four. Ooh. Well, there's less people in second service, but just as many of you, it appears, read through. So I'll have to rebuke first service next week. (laughs) Good, I'm glad. I encourage you to uh, continue to read the book all the way through. If you can do it in one sitting, it's always best. Uh, If you can't, then do it in a couple sittings. But that way, uh, you really begin to grasp the book better and better by doing that. And then as we go through it line by line, Um, the book will just come alive to you. And before long, you realize that you have um, every section of the book memorized. And um, you can outline it in your head. And then, when you go to the scriptures or people ask questions or 
you're giving instruction, you just know right where it is. So it's very sweet. All right, well, to begin with, um, it's always important to uh, study and to establish the historical context, especially of any document from antiquity. We need to know uh, what was going on in Galatia uh, at the time that Paul uh, wrote the letter here. And I guess before we get into that, um, the question to answer is, where is Galatia uh, inside of Turkey? Uh, There are two theories. Uh, One is that it's to the north, uh, and one is to the south. There was an ethnic group of people, uh, descendants of the Gauls, that that were settled up in the north. Some believe that Paul is writing to them. Uh, But then there's also a Roman province in the south uh, called Galatia, not confusing at all, uh, which uh, is not necessarily of any ethnic um, issue at all, but just the name of a province. Uh, In the the south in the Roman province is where uh, Paul planted those churches in Asia Minor uh, on his first missionary journey. Okay, Now, I take the position that that's what Paul, that, that's at rather who Paul is writing to. Uh, there's not really any real evidence that Paul went to uh, that northern place and addressed that ethnic group. Uh, Paul was primarily interested in cities that were uh, cities of trade, prominent cities, things like that, from where the gospel would easily branch out from there. And so I take the position that Paul is writing to the southern Roman province to those churches that he had previously planted. And I believe that accounts for why Paul is so passionate in in the book of Galatians, because those that he loved, those that he discipled in the faith, have recently been duped by these people that we'll uh, look at uh, a little bit later. So this letter to the Galatians, uh, I believe in the South, Paul is writing to them, and uh, something has happened to them in their fellowships, that has uh, provoked Paul to write. Now, thankfully, as far as historical context is concerned, we do have, um, I'm sorry, you have to look at two of me. (laughs) Let's try that again. You guys have that under control? All right, all right. So, any discrepancies, it's Roger's fault. So, it's always the associate's fault. Uh, As far as historical context is concerned, we have some from the book of Acts, which is very helpful. Uh, Acts contributes to a lot of context when it comes to the epistles of Paul. Uh, And then also, Paul himself provides some from Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2, as far as what's going on there. And, uh, um, you know, Galatians, I guess we might say, is um, in line with the a, um, a kind of epistle that's in the New Testament, and that is epistle where uh, uh, Paul is confronting, rebuking, and correcting. And we've already done two of those of late. We've been through the book of Hebrews, and we've been through uh, the epistle to the Corinthians, both first and second. Of course, first Corinthians is the, the one where they are being confronted, rebuked, and corrected. And there's interesting things between them when you compare them when we look at the book of Hebrews, the historical context there was we have a fellowship of Jewish believers 
who were being tempted to go back into Judaism that they might escape persecution. Okay? In 1 Corinthians, we have Gentile disciples who have come out of paganism, but because of whatever reason, they have been drawn back into some of the things of paganism, which is always ends up being extremely immoral. But when we come to Galatia, to, the, to, to those churches, which we'll, we'll talk more about uh, as we get into the text itself, these, uh, Paul is primarily talking to Gentile believers who are being convinced that they need to embrace things of Judaism. So they're not Jews being tempted to go back into Judaism. They are Gentiles who are being convinced by these people that they need to embrace and adopt uh, basically everything in Judaism from circumcision to the law of Moses and so forth. And, uh, but Paul is seriously coming against that. There is another book uh, in the New Testament that is a it's confrontational, at least in the beginning. That's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Uh, but it's not, it's not a whole book of that. Primarily the book is talking about this, this eschatological, you know, the revelation of Jesus Christ and end times things. But um, similar in the type of confrontation rebuke in uh, chapter 2 and 3. Not all books in the New Testament are happy. I would say especially 1 Corinthians. That one I think Paul was just like, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> and you read some of the stuff that they are into. So... Uh, Gentile, the, not Gentile, in the book of Galatians, it's a different matter. It's not uh, immorality, it's other things. So as we see, it's not, if it's not one thing, it's another thing. So the Galatian believers, uh, primarily Gentiles who Paul is talking about, uh, they have been duped by a group of people called Judaizers. Are you guys familiar with the term Judaizer? Uh, the, uh, the, you won't find the term in your Bible. It's actually a term that uh, was coined to describe these people. And we'll look at some other terms that, uh, that of course, it's, that term's not in the Bible, but there were ways that Paul was describing these people, uh, not all of them friendly. And then uh, they were haunted by the teaching of the Judaizers, which we call legalism. So Gentiles being tempted to mingle their faith in Christ with the law of Moses and things of that nature. So I want to talk about, uh, for the historical context, who the Judaizers were and then their teaching, their legalism. And it's, it's who these Judaizers were and what they demanded and taught. Uh, that has to be understood if we're going to understand the book of Galatians. And then when you understand Galatians, of course, you're going to have a better understanding of the gospel as a whole. And uh, so I think it's very important. Uh, also, we are going to have to spend some time harmonizing some of the details in the book of Acts with what Paul is talking about in Galatians. And that also will give uh, more detail for us, more insight. Uh, we're going to have to wrestle with uh, Acts chapter 10 and 11 and then Acts chapter 15. We're not going to do that this morning. I will refer to some of the things uh, there but when we actually get into the epistle, we'll start harmonizing those things, and, um, and then we'll see why Paul is saying exactly what he's saying. So Judaizers and their legalism. The Judaizers, 
uh, were Jews who believed themselves to be Christians. They were Jews who believed themselves to be Christians. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they believed that it was also necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised and then to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved and to be pleasing to God or to be sanctified. Okay. Now, the word Judaizer, as I said, it's not in the New Testament. Uh, it was created to make a distinction between Jewish believers and those Jews who only professed faith in Jesus while demanding this commitment to the law of Moses. Okay. Um, let's look at some of the ways that they're referred to. This will be helpful, too, when you study some of the other books. Uh, Paul talks about them in many epistles. And... Uh, so it's important. The first one there is the circumcision. You see some verses uh, there for that. The term circumcision is used many times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's just talking about Jews, period, ethnic Jews. Other times it's used just to talk about circumcision. But here in these passages, Paul is actually referring to these heretics, these false teachers, these Judaizers. Um, yeah. In Philippians 3, he calls them the mutilation because he, they were always trying to get the, the Gentiles to be circumcised. And to Paul, that had become just mutilating yourself uh, for, no, for no end, for no, for no good end. And so he calls them the mutilation. He also calls them dogs. Now that term is funny because uh, these men that he's calling dogs are Jews. And uh, that is really what the Jews would call Gentiles, historically. And Paul turns that on them and says, no, you guys are the dogs. You guys are the dogs, Philippians 3.2. He calls them evil workers in Philippians 3.2 as well uh, because of their doctrine, because of the things they were teaching. Those that would embrace this uh, could forfeit salvation in Christ. In fact, when Paul is referring to them and to uh, this teaching that they brought, he said, anyone who brings this, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. Uh, Paul could not have found a stronger word uh, regarding the, the, their eternal bode because of their doctrine. He's saying, let them be condemned to hell, basically. Uh, not a friendly way to refer to anyone and then in uh, Acts 15.5, we have this, uh, this phrase that comes into the text there. It says, believing sect of the Pharisees. The believing sect of the Pharisees. Now, the earliest Judaizers uh, were probably from the, uh, the Pharisaical sect who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But the problem was they weren't fully trusting him for everything regarding their salvation. So they, they may have trusted him for what we'll get into later is legal righteousness, but they weren't trusting him for practical righteousness. And so they, what they would do is they would have then appeal to the law of Moses for how to become you know, obedience to the law and how to become uh, pleasing to God. That is what Paul is going to address in the book of Galatians. And then it was these, uh, early on, these Pharisees, it seems that they're the ones that uh, established kind of a, a small sect of their own, and then they, they, they made their disciples, and then these are the disciples that went out and caused so much trouble for the Apostle Paul. And they indeed caused him a ton 
of trouble. Uh, they were an amb- ambitious group. And we have called these guys the Judaizers ever since. Um, okay. The teaching of the Judaizers, their legalism, uh, Paul refers to it as a perverted gospel. That's Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, which leads to uh, this state of being accursed, uh, eternal damnation. Paul says this other gospel is really no gospel at all, and this is because there is no good news in a salvation that is acquired by man's obedience to the law of Moses. There is no good news in that. If, if you are to be saved, and the only way for you to be saved is to keep the law of Moses, I mean, I think that most of you know yourself well enough morally that if your salvation is based upon your obedience, where will you end up? Where disobedient people go. Okay? It will not go well for you. It's not good news. And because the reason is, is because uh, no man but Jesus has or ever could keep the law of Moses perfectly. He's the only one. Okay. If it's up to us, we're doomed. Okay. Um, yep. If getting saved or keeping our salvation depended on our obedience to the law um, or any set of other rules for that matter, we would be lost. And so the men who taught this, this other so-called gospel, Paul says, they are false brethren. Chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 3 and 4. If you are a false Brethren, and he's, he's calling them false brethren because of what they believe, they're not saved. They're not Christian. Okay? So their doctrine is dangerous. It's dangerous. And then finally, Paul called these men false apostles, that is, to the Corinthians, because they had, these men had come to Corinth and they were masquerading as apostles of Christ, but they had neither been appointed by Christ or sent out by him. They were self-appointed. They were sent out by their own little sect uh, to do the damage that they were doing, and, uh, and they had done a lot. Um, that, I think, is what is so interesting about them, the zeal that they had, the ambition that they had. So originally, we find them uh, coming to Antioch. Uh, was kind of Paul's launching place, uh, was from Antioch. And he's there with Barnabas, and these Judaizers show up, and they say it's necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised. And Paul says, I don't think so. And so they form a delegation, and that delegation goes down to Jerusalem. And they gather the apostles, the elders of the church, they seek the Holy Spirit, and they come to this conclusion about Gentiles. They don't have to be circumcised, they don't keep the law of Moses, period. And then they write a letter, and they send that letter out to the Gentile churches. And so Paul is very excited to take that letter and say, guess what? You guys don't have to be circumcised. <laughs> and there was great celebration in the church. And, uh, and so Paul visits the churches a second time. And guess who's right behind him? The Judaizers. And they're coming in and they're trying to convince the believers that it's necessary to keep the law. Oh, not for salvation, but for sanctification. And that's why we have the book of Galatians. Paul finds out from a messenger, 
and uh, things get ugly. But not only did they follow Paul into, you know, that, that southeastern part of Asia, they followed him into Macedonia, to Achaia, to Athens, and then into Corinth, and then to Ephesus. Everywhere Paul went, they were on his heels, and they were trying to destroy everything that Paul had established. That's some ambition. That's a lot of travel to spread a heresy uh, that is in opposition to someone else. And um, it's very interesting. Uh, I guess people are just very strange. So with that said, let's talk about legalism, uh, which Paul says is a perversion of the gospel itself. The gospel itself. Uh, The Judaizers... And understand all legalists today, and we have uh, plenty of them, uh, for them, faith in Christ is not sufficient for either salvation or sanctification or both. Now, when someone says that you have to keep the law to be saved, we put them in the category called a Christian cult. They're the ones that are always trying to correct uh, biblical Christianity, okay? Um, But there are many other forms of legalism in the church which tries to get you in obedience to the law of Moses for sanctification, okay? That is, when we talk about sanctification, it's the work of the Holy Spirit essentially to make us more like Jesus, okay? In our character, in our morality, in our thinking, in our life. And so anyway, when it comes to legalism, it's always Jesus and. It's always Jesus and. And when anybody says Jesus and, just put a period there and say stop. Okay? No. It's not Jesus and. It's just not. Okay? Because when, after they say and, then they provide you this list of requirements that they require. And it could be anything at all. Okay? Uh, at, so I've been here about 15 years at Calvary Chapel. 14 years. Uh, you poor people. Man. And I've heard a lot of, of your stories about places that you've been, uh, things that you've been a part of, and I've heard some pretty wild ones. Uh, but just the kinds of legalism that people have been into. I mentioned last week, um, you know, many people in the old school, homeschool community, uh, they were exposed to many kinds of different uh, forms of legalism. That, you know, the, 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 the right Christian family looks like this, and they do these things, and uh, women have to dress a certain way. And I always thought, well, where does the Bible say that trousers are only for women? Or only for men, rather. And where's the Bible verse for, you know, some of these things? And the hair has to be a certain way, and, and by the way, the dress has to be denim. And it, it's ridiculous. But because of our zeal for righteousness, we get caught up in it, don't we? I mean, we want to do the right thing. We want to be well-pleasing in God's sight. And sometimes we do things that, quite frankly, are just silly. And they're not in the scriptures. And uh, if you want to hear some about the, that homeschool stuff, talk to, to Jeremy Corwin. He likes to share. And uh, they went through all of that. They experienced much of it. Uh, you know, if you were a good Christian mother, you had to make homemade bread. Uh, things like that. And... Uh, well, I like homemade bread. Uh, it's, it's not a requirement to be like Jesus, who probably never baked bread in his life. But, um, 
any, anything, it seems. So legalism always comes in at least two forms, at least two forms, okay? Rules you have to obey to be saved. Rules you have to, be, uh, to obey to be saved. And rules you have to obey to be sanctified. And then sometimes it's a combination of the two. In the book of Acts and the book of Galatians, the rules were, of course, historically circumcision and obedience to the law. Today, it's whatever garden variety is out there and anything that people want to get you to do. Um, be very aware of that. Legalism, uh, the issue of it, first poked its ugly head up in Acts 11 and was eventually then addressed in Acts chapter 15 as the apostles were led by the Spirit. Now, in Acts chapter 10, Paul, or not Paul, Peter was in Joppa, remember, at the Tanner's house, and he had this dream and in the dream, he, uh, and of course, the dream ends, and then somebody knocks at the door for him, and inviting him to go to Cornelius' house, who is a, a military man, a Gentile. And, uh, and so Peter agrees because of his dream, and he grabs witnesses with him, and he goes to Cornelius' house, shares the gospel with him. They're filled with the Spirit, baptized, saved, and the whole thing. It's amazing. It's the Gentile Pentecost is what we call it. But then Peter is making his way back to the headquarters and uh, somebody else had arrived there first and told him what Peter did. And they said, you went into a Gentile's home and you ate with them? Yep. And the pork ribs were wonderful. And that's the first time we really see it cropping up in the book of Acts. And Paul explains, or Peter explains himself, and things settle down a little bit <coughs> until those men find their way to Antioch, and Paul is not so um, passive as Peter. And uh, it really gets going from there. So, <coughs> and the crazy thing, I think, is that what should have been resolved permanently for the church in Acts 15 was not. Legalism is alive and well and destroying people's lives. Instead of yielding to the decision of the Holy Spirit, they went out and tried to convert Gentile believers to this sort of hybrid of Christianity and Judaism. But as Paul talks about in, in Galatians and Romans, the two are mutually exclusive. They are not compatible. Not at all. Okay. What else? Oh, yeah. I, I would like to give you, if you're taking notes, I'd like to give you some references. And it always astounds me that legalism thrives today in the church because uh, Galatian, the, the people of Galatia, the churches there, they just had the book of Galatians. But not us. We have the whole text of the New Testament. And there is copious amounts of, of um, information on this. Uh, we have Acts 15. We have Romans 13 through 14. We have 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We have all of Galatians. We have Ephesians 2, uh, 14 through 16. We have Colossians 2. We have 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 11. And we have all of the book of Hebrews. Because we have all of that data to bring to the table in discussing legalism and what the true gospel is and what it is not. Uh, I was telling first service that 
I was in um, Israel in the city of Netanya, and I was attending a, um, what is called a messianic fellowship. It's a, it's a fellowship, uh, and I, it has to be clarified because messianic fellowships on the West Coast are filled with Gentiles. It's a very strange phenomenon. It's usually Gentiles that want to be Jews. Uh, in Israel, it's Jews having church together. And I had gone over there to hopefully establish a partnership for mission work in Israel. And the church that was our primary connection there was the one that we were, we'd gone to. And the pastor was uh, teaching through the book of Galatians. And I thought, well, that's perfect. He can, he can really, you know, lay it down and, and share what the truth of the gospel is in regard to all of these trappings and traditions and the legalism and I've never heard someone say so many times in a teaching that this is not what the text means. Yeah, there was no partnership. They are bound up in the law. Uh, in fact, the service began with a bar mitzvah. And uh, a bar mitzvah, uh, it, it's for a son, a, a boy who's coming of age to where he becomes a son of the law. Bar mitzvah means son of the law. And his father before then was accountable for his son's actions, but now the boy is accountable for his own actions. He's a son of the law. And uh, so they put this boy under the law, and then they taught Galatians. It was the strangest thing that I've ever seen in my life. And uh, it's very sad. So we did not form that uh, partnership in Israel. Our partnerships are in Peru, as you know, Kenya, and now Libya. So be praying for our missionaries. Yeah, Bethany, by the way, is doing very well in Libya. And um, be praying for her. She's creating all these uh, relationships with Muslim women, and um, it's just very sweet. So anyway, uh, as far as legalism goes, I think that the book of Galatians, Hebrews, and even Romans are um, the greatest hurdle uh, to any kind of uh, legalism today. So I'd say know them well. And uh, be ready with grace to uh, speak with people in that regard. All right, so um, let's get in more into the introduction of the book here. Let's talk about the author. Um, now, I think that it's silly uh, to try to find another author besides Paul. Uh, he's definitely the author of the book of Galatians. And uh, uh, ever since the, the beginning of the church, until recent times, it really hasn't been an issue debated in the church. Uh, he, he's pretty much always been recognized. There is controversies over some other books and who the author is, but when it comes to Galatians, it's just not the case. There is a strange group of men in Germany who have said things like, well, Paul didn't exist and Jesus didn't exist and it was all written in the second, third century and so forth. Um, just ignore those people. Uh, it's not scholarship, it's just silliness. Paul identifies himself as the author immediately in chapter 1, verse 1, and then again in chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, and, he, and it appears to be the only book that he put his signature on. Uh, he, he says, you see which, with what large letters I have signed my name. And people, they, they, uh, they debate over, you know, why did Paul write his name so big? Was it because his eyes were fading or was because of his passion he really put that puppy on there. And uh, so I, I don't know, but um, yeah, this one is Paul's book, recognized since the earliest time. Um, and as, as what is important to note 
is that we will conclude, as our Bibles do, that Paul was the author who was inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit, who ensured that all of its content is true, it's trustworthy and authoritative for all Christian faith and practice. Amen? All right. What about the date? Now, dating the book of Galatians is not uh, easy. Okay, and there are two uh, very well-divided camps on the date. Uh, I would say your average person doesn't care what the date is, and I would say that don't concern yourself too much with the date because it doesn't affect the interpretation of the book. Okay, uh, if it was affecting the interpretation of the book, then the debate would be very important, but it does not. The date is based upon which visit to Jerusalem is mentioned by Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's how we date it. But the problem is Paul uses the word again. Again, I went to Jerusalem. We don't know if he means the second time or the third time. And uh, so Paul didn't clear that up for us. So it's for us to look at all of the information best we can. Um, so which visit was it? Uh, his, his second visit was in Acts 11. And at that visit, he was bringing relief to the church in Judea because of the famine. Okay? That would set an early date for the book of Galatians. The other visit is the one referring to his visit in Acts 15, when the apostles of the church gathered together to talk about what was required for Gentile disciples. Okay? Uh, there's challenges uh, contained in both views, and prior to now, uh, I, I kind of didn't stand on any view. I have since taken a view after looking at the information more closely that I'm convinced by. Um, I know people that hold the other view. Uh, it does not divide us. It's just, it's just one of those things, okay? I take the latter date, okay? The latter date. Um, yeah. As I said, it doesn't affect the interpretation of the book, but I think it's uh, important to note that the earlier date makes Peter look less guilty. And if you've read Galatians chapter 2, uh, you know that Paul has confronted him in front of everybody, rebuked him, because what he was doing was he was persuading uh, Gentile disciples to eat kosher. And that's not okay. Okay? And we'll get into that later. Uh, so if, the if, if, if this event of Peter being addressed preceded the Jerusalem council's decision, uh, then Peter looks a little less like a hypocrite, right? A little bit less. But either way, Peter's a hypocrite, as Paul calls him, calls him hypocrite, because of his experience at Cornelius' house in Acts 10, and then defending his actions in Acts chapter 11. So there's, for Peter, it just doesn't look good either way. And uh, so, but that's the way that it goes. Uh, Peter was out of line. Uh, so was Barnabas, Paul will point out. And, uh, but anyway, Galatians 2 fits best with Paul's visit in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And um, so Peter will just have to be that encouragement for people that vacillate in their convictions and uh, buckle to peer pressure. That's just too bad for Peter. Let's move on. Uh, let's talk about some of the doctrinal uh, things uh, in the book of Galatians. Now, um, 
I have struggled with the book of Galatians. Uh, I did for years until about five years ago uh, when I, I, I believe that I figured out the hermeneutic of it. But I think the real challenge that faces the interpreter uh, of Galatians really is their knowledge of the book of Romans. Now, not that knowledge of the book of Romans is bad. There's just some differences. In both letters, Paul is using similar language which causes the interpreter to assume uh, that he's making the same points and coming to the same conclusions. But while there's similar language, each book is using that language in different ways within a different context. And the context has to be the king when it comes to interpreting anything. Amen? Context is always king. Okay? Just because there's similarities does not make them the same. And uh, so I struggled because I was doing that. But then as soon as I stopped forcing a narrow definition to the language itself and allowed the context to define the terms, then everything was harmonized quite quickly and nicely. Uh, it was it's like somebody opened the window and then all of Galatians just unraveled before me. And of course, the fault was mine. The fault was mine, as, as it always is. So let me explain the difference to you. It's very important. And... Um, and I think it'll be helpful. In the book of Romans, uh, Paul's concern in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 25 is what we call legal righteousness. Legal righteousness. That is the act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous because of his faith in Jesus. Okay? That's legal righteousness. Jesus transfers. He imputes his righteousness to the sinner who trusts in him. I think probably the most radical statement in all of the book of Romans is in chapter 4, verse 5, when Paul says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Did you read yourself into that text? But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see, a, a dirty, rotten sinner comes to faith in Jesus. And at that very instant, he is declared righteous by the Father. No subjective change happens to the sinner at that moment. Nothing subjective. Okay? It's only a declarative act of God that he now has a right standing before me. It's a legal act. Okay? That's what Paul is trying to get at in the book of Romans, okay? By this, we have a perfect standing before God, the judge. Uh, we might say the sinner is acquitted. Uh, they're pardoned of all transgression. They're forgiven of all moral debts. The record of all our moral wrongs are discarded. And then we stand before God in all of the moral beauty of Christ, we are accepted in the beloved, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. That is legal righteousness. It's settled the very moment we trust in Christ. But in Galatians, Paul's concern is not legal righteousness, but practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. The righteousness that follows. It's the righteousness that, is, is that follows after we leave the courtroom, if you will. We're declared right in the sight of the law and the sight of God. But 
we still got some serious problems. Amen? Habits. Things that we do. They have to be, we have to be cleansed of them. And through walking by faith in the grace of God, we're then fashioned day by day in a process to where we become more like Christ. Okay? That's sanctification. That's practical righteousness. Okay? Legal right justification is a one-time occurrence. We say it's a past completed event, but practical righteousness is a lifetime process. Okay? And that process won't be complete until we stand before the Lord. Okay, where we're actually delivered from the sin nature. But until then, we, we got a few issues, as you could tell. I'm talking about myself. You can talk about yourself anytime you like. Um, in, in the context of um, practical righteousness, uh, this, is, this is something that is done by the Holy Spirit. Okay, as we're energized by his grace. Okay. The people in the churches of Galatia understand that they were saved people. Paul was not trying to get them saved again in his letter. They are saved, so the issue that he's trying to talk to them through is the issue of practical righteousness, not legal righteousness. Okay. Not legal righteousness. I wish that Paul's letter had forever fixed the problem of legalism, but it has not. Now, real quick, um, all evangelicals agree that we cannot be saved by keeping the law. Does everybody understand that? Uh, We're not saved by how good we become by our adherence or observation, uh, observance rather, of the law of Moses or any other law for that matter. Okay. Uh, We all believe that. But what is interesting is that among those who, uh, um, rather, there are people, there are groups that within Christianity that believe that we have to keep the law to be well-pleasing to God. Okay, that is the legalism that Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians. He's talking about the other one in Romans. Romans 3.21 to chapter 4, verse 25. But it's this other one this keeping the law to be pleasing to God, that's what he's talking about in Galatians. It's what he's condemning, okay? And what is interesting, among those who think that we're obligated to obey parts of the law can't agree on which parts. They can't. I'm familiar with all of their teachings. I study them all the time, and I'm always trying to harmonize what they think in the law we're supposed to keep. There are some similarities, but they're very different. The question is, why is there no real harmony? It's because there is no New Testament instruction. Okay? No New Testament instruction. The Seventh-day Adventists want us to keep Saturday Sabbath. They want us to pay tithes and be vegetarians, which Jesus and the apostles were not. They weren't none of those things. Was that proper English? They were not any of those things. (laughs) We'll edit that out of the tape. Uh, Historically, covenant theology, which is only about 400 years old, would have us keep Sabbath, but they can't decide if it's Saturday or Sunday or a combination of both. It depends on the the covenant person that you're speaking to. Okay? 
Um, and then they arbitrarily adhere to various parts of the law because they can't find any actual distinction between what is ceremonial law and what is moral law. And then some among the messianics would have us keep the law of Moses, Saturday, Sabbaths, kosher, the feasts, and many other things. It's all very confusing when you get into that world. Um, and what I found that's uh, interesting is that none of them can a- account for the law being fulfilled in its entirety by Christ, Matthew 5, 17, or that the establishment of the new covenant in Jesus' blood made the entire old covenant obsolete, according to Hebrews chapter 8. In fact, Paul gives the only um, uh, real like allegory from the Old Testament uh, in the book of Galatians, and he compares the two covenants and his conclusion at the end of his allegory is he, he compares the old covenant to Hagar and to her son. And what was Abraham commanded to do with Hagar and her son? Get them away. Get them away. And yet people continue to invite it back in. And, you, and, and I mentioned this inability to distinguish with any you know, real accuracy uh, or agreement between what is purely ceremonial law and what is moral law. And that's problematic for them because in almost every instance where the New Testament says that we're not under the law, the context is referring to the Ten Commandments and not the so-called ceremonial law, Romans 6 and 7. Uh, Paul quotes uh, the Tenth Commandment. And, uh, uh, and then he says, but we're not under the law. Now, by saying those things, he has to account for that. Well, if we don't have the law, then, then what? And he'll do that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, the distinction between the ceremonial laws, uh, the ceremonial law and the moral laws in the law of Moses, uh, they're completely artificial. Uh, those were not made until more recent in history. They're never made in the scriptures. Jesus never said there's the ceremonial law and then there's the moral law. He said there's the law and it's one and then there's the prophets. But, but splitting the law up into all these pieces, uh, that's a man-made thing, not a Jesus thing. And so I believe that while we recognize there's different kinds of laws in the law of Moses, we have no business separating them because God never did. Okay, we should be very careful, especially when we're trying to interpret New Testament theology. In Galatians 3.10, Paul said that everyone who is of the works of the law, speaking of the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, he says they are under the curse. Who wants to be under a curse? No hands. I didn't see hands on that one. And then he says that, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 27. He says, cursed is the man who does not continue in all things which are written in the law to do them. Guess what we find in Deuteronomy 27? A number of the Ten Commandments. A number of them. Okay? And Paul's not trying to encourage people to be more committed to the law in order to be pleasing to God and avoid the curse. He's trying to keep people away from the old covenant and get them to trust in Christ and his grace fully and only. That's his point in the book of Galatians. And Paul says that God didn't give the law to help his people be righteous people. Does that come as a shock to some of you? 
He did not give his law to make his people righteous people. Paul says, why was the law given? He said it was given because of transgression. Okay, Given because of transgression. Paul says the law doesn't help people be righteous. It just condemns them. That's 2 Corinthians 3. That's Romans 3, 19 through 20. He gave the law to point out our unrighteousness, which helps demonstrate our need for Christ. Okay? It points us to Christ. Paul says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That's legal righteousness. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. That language, I believe, is some of the plainest language we can find in this context. Listen to it again. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. It's pretty clear, isn't it? The tutor is the law. The tutor, I believe, chases us to Calvary, okay, condemning us the whole way. And then we're justified by faith in Christ. And Paul says, there's no longer any need for the tutor, period, period. And the tutor is the law. But some crazy person interpreted this to mean that the law leads us to Christ for legal justification, and then Christ leads us back to the law for practical righteousness. Where did you get that? I mean, the first part was right out of the text. The second part is nowhere in the New Testament text. Okay? Nowhere. Nowhere. First part's right. The second part is what we call eisegesis. It's putting meaning into the text. And the conclusion that that interpreter comes to is the exact conclusion that Paul is coming against in the book of Galatians. How you can come to the exact opposite, the antithesis of Paul's conclusion is astounding to me. And it's, I think it's exegetical insanity. It's dangerous. It's regurgitating the, the doctrine of the Judaizers. That's what that's doing. Paul's saying, no, there's no longer any use for the tutorial law once you've come to faith in Jesus. Paul says that those who use the law of Moses or any such religious regulations for practical righteousness, he says, you've become estranged from Christ. You've fallen from grace. That's not a place, that's Galatians 5.4, but that's not a place where anybody wants to be. Paul declares that the believer is not under the authority when he uses the word under, you're not under law, he says in Galatians 6, but under grace. The word under means under the authority of, under the jurisdiction of. He says you're not under that jurisdiction, you're under the jurisdiction of grace. We are subject to grace alone. But, you know, some have objected to Paul's conclusion, both then and now, saying, no law? No law? That leads to lawlessness and immorality, Paul. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. He says, we've been accused of things that are not true. He said, some have said, as he begins in Romans uh, chapter 6, you know, let us sin so that grace may abound. And Paul's like, what are you talking about? Grace doesn't permit sinfulness. Grace energizes for holiness. And that's Paul's point when he gets toward the end of the book of Galatians, okay? Crazy stuff. 
that conclusion concerning the law is a misunderstanding of the nature of the gospel. You see, those who belong to Christ have the Holy Spirit, right? Regeneration, born of the Spirit. And the life that is governed by the Holy Spirit and energized by His grace is invigorated for righteousness. Invigorated. You know what Paul says, with the law comes all manner of evil desire. Is that helpful to your walk of holiness? No. 2 Corinthians 3 says the law just condemns, but the Spirit gives life. The law condemns, the Spirit gives life. So Paul says you're not under the law, you are led by the Spirit. He says in Galatians 5.18 that those who are led by the Spirit, he says you're not under the law. And if you walk in the power of the Spirit, he says you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Understand, Fulfilling the lust of the flesh is moral lawlessness if you walk in the flesh. But by walking in the Spirit, you will live a holy life, Galatians 5, 16. So Paul comes to two great conclusions in the book of Galatians, two amazing conclusions. The first one, because of the believer's legal righteousness, he's free from the law of Moses and all religious regulations. Because of the legal righteousness that you have obtained through faith in Christ, you're free from the law and all religious regulations. Number two, and because of the Holy Spirit's power in the believer's life, he's free not to sin. By the Holy Spirit, we've been delivered from the power of sin. Romans 6 through 8. Okay, Galatians chapter 5 and 6. So, if you are empowered by the, the third person in the Trinity, what need would you have for law that has no power to help you, but is actually, Paul says, a hindrance? He says the sting of death is sin. He says the strength of the law, or the strength of sin is the law. Do you hear that? The strength of sin, he told the Corinthians, is the law. So do you think you need more of it in your life? By the laws, all manner of evil desire, do you think you need more law in your life? No, you need more of the Spirit's power okay, to live holy. This is true liberty. And so Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You know what the yoke of bondage is? The law law. Another translation says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. You guys are smiling at me. I thought I was back on the screen again. Isn't that a beautiful conclusion? It is for freedom that Christ set us free. All right, so let me give you the outline. It is short and sweet. I didn't want to belabor or uh, drown anyone. Uh, As usual, uh, or as common, I steal Norman Geisler's because uh, he makes them catchy, easy to follow easy to memorize, whereas um, Matthew Henry's are extremely long, and there's no catchy language in it, and it's a good place to catch a nap. Uh, They're good outlines, uh, but anyway, here it is. Liberty stated, chapter 1 and 2. Liberty defended, chapters 3 through 4. And liberty applied, chapters 5 through 6. Liberty stated, 
liberty defended, liberty applied. It's pretty simple, right? Okay, so that's what we will be doing for the next year or something. Okay, we're going to get into liberty. What is true biblical liberty in Christianity? It is always deliverance from the law and the deliverance from the power of sin so that we can live for God. That's actually quoting Paul. He says, I died to the law so that it would be possible for me to live for God. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. And I don't have anybody to do a closing worship song today. So I apologize. And I would sing for you. But I want you to come back next Sunday. So let's pray. Well, Lord, um, just coming from my distorted and convoluted background in Mormonism and legalism and all of that, or Galatians is refreshing. It's life-giving. And Lord, I know so many people that have taken what they think is an, an easy route, and that's to pick up some rules some regulations, and think that they're following God. Where the whole time, you are wanting just pure intimacy with them. And that by virtue of your presence in them, and your Holy Spirit working in them, they would acquire all the things that they hope for. Lord, it's Christ in us. It's grace that teaches us, Lord. The Holy Spirit energizes us. So, Lord, I pray that as we go through this book, that some people that struggle with those things, that they would be freed from that, and they would just walk in the power of your Spirit and live a life that glorifies you, that blesses you, and in turn is a blessing to them and other people. So, Lord, use the teaching of your Word uh, to inspire us, to instruct us. So, Lord, we love you, and we're, we're thankful for you. Lord, I pray for um, just my church family. Just ask that you lavish your grace upon them this week. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If I've said anything that uh, you have questions about, I'm always available to chat. So, Lord bless you guys.